0: Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.
1: Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Patrick Tuttle with Remax Real Estate Group in El Paso, Texas. Last year he closed 71 transactions with a total sales volume of 12 million. His average sales price was 169,000, of which 41% were buyers and 59% were sellers. Plus, Patrick manages 136 rental properties generating 184,000 per month in rent. He operates a team with eight members two buyer specialists, one listing and sales manager, one rentals manager, one part-time marketing assistant, one part-time bookkeeper, and one team leader. Patrick Tuttle is the team leader of the Patrick Tuttle Home Selling Team. He has been an agent for 11 years. Patrick runs a dual operation, splitting his time between sales and property management. Often, one feeds the other, creating synergy and profits. In this call, Patrick talks about a real estate coach who told him to quit the business, how he modified his business model to focus on his strengths, working in the market where 80% of the population is Hispanic and speaks Spanish as a first or second language, doing business with military personnel from an expanding army base, Moving to a town where he only knew his wife and generating 85% of his business by repeat and referrals from his sphere of influence and past clients. How he does business without making any prospecting calls. Personally selling 66 homes while he manages 136 rental properties for others. How his property management business doubled last year by referrals after he structured it to be more landlord friendly. His step-by-step system for filling a vacancy. Tenant screening process without credit reports. Rental collection schedule and system with dates and actions. Automating electronic rent collection and landlord payment. Property management software to keep things running smoothly. How to avoid midnight calls for plumbing issues. Team structure. Profitability, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, Real Estate Agent Lead Generation Television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Patrick.
0: Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Patrick, before we start talking about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate.
0: Well, we go go back to high school. I joined a grocery company when I was 16 and then worked the next 17 years with that grocery company and worked my way up to a retail store manager. And then after I left the grocery business, I bought a job and I don't advise that to anybody. I bought a job selling uh, disc assessments and other assessments similar to the disc, found out that I wasn't a very good salesperson with an intangible product like information. And um, then I got into real estate because I had a brother-in-law in in El Paso that jokingly said, look, you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in a town full of Hispanics. The only thing you can do is sell real estate. So here I am today selling real estate based on that advice. And it's worked out. How long have you been in the business? I started in April of 2001. So that puts us almost uh, 12 years now. When you started, did you have a fast start or a slow start? Everybody tells me that I had a fairly fast start. My first year, which was 2001, I can't remember exactly how many I closed, but I closed 28 transactions the next year. Went to 40 some odd transactions the second year and then have hovered between 50 and 60 for the past couple of years. And a lot of that's while we're building up the property management business as well. So, for our industry standards, I think it was fairly fast, but compared to the folks that I listen to on these uh, mastermind interviews, it's uh, probably very slow. How many homes did you sell last year? I personally sold 66, which that was listings and sales. And then I, at the end of the year, I brought on a buyer agent who closed five transactions for me, which gave us the total of 71. And then we recently brought on another buyer agent to help us out so that uh, we can close more for 2013.
1: What was your sales volume with those 71 sales?
0: We had right at 12 million in sales.
1: You mentioned that you bought your job and you were selling disc assessments. I also think I heard something that you had a, a real estate coach that based on your disc assessment recommended
0: you get out of real estate. Is that true? That is true. And I won't mention the name of the company because they're not here to defend themselves. But um, I was advised to get out of the business. And this happened probably in 2004, 2005, when I was looking to find a pattern or a model that I could follow to get into higher production. I knew that back then I had hit a plateau, and I didn't know where to go. And I got in touch with a coaching organization, which is, I feel like, a very well-respected organization. They, like many people will do, gave me a disc assessment and called me back and said, have you thought about another career? (laughs) And I said, you know, I... I have had another career, but this is what I'm in. And I feel like there's got to be a way that I can build up to where I want to be. I just need some leadership, some guidance to, to help me get there. And the guy said, we're not the right guys to do that. Based on your personality, we don't believe that you're going to succeed in the real estate business. So we wish you well and good luck. Wow. Wow. So, Not
1: only did they give you the bad news, they turned you down and turned down your money to boot. You must have been feeling pretty low.
0: Well, I was surprised, uh, to say the least, because I had already read the Millionaire Real Estate Agent book by Gary Keller and Dave Jinks. And... In there, they have one of the myth understandings, that's M-Y-T-H understandings, and one of those myth understandings was that it can't be done in my market. Well, I translated that to it can't be done with my personality style, and I decided that it can be done. I just need a new approach. I've just got to figure out how to do it, and we're still working on that, figuring it out, and thankfully, because of organizations like yours, we're able to pick the brains of top agents across the country and utilize what they've done and be able to adapt it to our market and my personality style.
1: Patrick, what were the results of the test? What is your personality style?
0: I have a high S and a secondary high C, and my D is almost down at the bottom, and the the I is just above the D. So, very, very high S. So, I'm a very steady, conscientious type person, which typically translates good for accountants, but not that good for residential real estate sales.
1: Well, after selling 66 homes all by yourself last year, I'd say you're doing just fine.
0: You know, we're blessed. We we had a good year last year. And what we're doing this year is trying to get it up to 94 transactions. And I believe with the systems that we've got in place, we'll be able to do that and maybe even top the 100 mark this year.
1: Patrick, tell us where
0: El Paso, Texas is. Well, if you can imagine the state of Texas and you go to the far left-hand side of it, the point, we're right in the point. So literally from my office, I can drive three miles west and get into New Mexico. I can drive five miles south and go to Old Mexico, Juarez, Mexico, or I can drive about 10 miles north and get into New Mexico from that direction. So we're really the far west Texas portion Of the state. Describe your current market. In our market the the city itself and the county we've got about 750,000 people that live on the north side of the border and then in Ciudad Juarez we have about 1.2 million people that live over there but that's a completely different market that we don't even touch. So the part that we work with is about 750,000 people in the county and I work primarily in West El Paso however I do work all around the county we've got about forty percent of our market that is consumed by brand new construction and then the sixty percent is by used homes or residential retail sales the average price for a new home in 2012 was hundred and forty one thousand dollars and the average price for a resale home was hundred and thirty so it's a fairly vibrant market we closed about fifty five hundred transactions through our multiple listing service there was a roughly another thousand transactions of new home builders that didn't go through the mls and then of course you've got some of the fisbo business that doesn't get tracked at all so about sixty five hundred single-family residences were sold in our market last year which translates to about thirteen thousand transactions total
1: what is the price trend right now? Is it moving up, staying the same, going down?
0: It really depends on the part of the market that you're in. It, where my office is located in West El Paso, if we were to segment it and go, say, from a 175000 and below, we've got about a four-month supply of inventory on the market, and those prices are trending up just slightly. If we get into one seventy-five to, say, $300,000, we've got roughly a nine-month supply of homes, and those prices are flat. If you get above $300,000, we translate all the way up to a five-year supply of homes, which that's at seven fifty and above, and those prices are dropping. If you can find a buyer that will buy it, that's it.
1: So you've had to explain that before.
0: Quite a few times. In fact, uh, that's part of our listing presentation to be able to talk about the market and the absorption rate and show the different trend lines as to what's going on with our pricing and the number of potential buyers that we've got in any given time period. Was your market affected
1: by this recession? Do you have a lot of REO and short sale properties in the market?
0: You know, surprisingly, the REO and short sale market didn't really affect us that much. Our market took off back in 2005, not because of the lending that was going on, but rather from something called the base realignment and closure. Now, we have Fort Bliss, which is a very large military installation here. We've got the United States Army here. And roughly 38,000 soldiers call El Paso home. And the United States Department of Defense announced that Fort Bliss was going to be the number one installation for the Army back in 2005. This was in May of 05. In June of 05, our market started to take off because our planes were literally filled with investors coming to buy property and hoping to capitalize on the rental market and the appreciation. The part that those investors missed was the timeline in that the Army was going to start sending out the troops. That summer of 2005, we gained about 3,500 soldiers locally we had about ten thousand at the time and now we're up to about thirty eight thousand. So there has been a big increase in the, the boots on the ground here in El Paso. But a lot of investors came here back in oh five hoping to cash in big like they had done in Vegas and in Phoenix and the Tucson markets, and they didn't understand the property tax structure in Texas, nor did they understand the timeline that the Army was going to send troops here. So a lot of investors came here, lost their shirts, and properties went back on the market. But during the foreclosure bust here locally, we probably saw a 15% increase in the number of foreclosed homes over what we had seen before the bust. And then the short sales have really been a non-issue at all because our market, since we didn't get a great appreciation, we didn't get a great decrease either. So a lot of folks didn't end up underwater. And that was the reason why we started doing property management, because we had so many people who it just didn't make sense for them to sell. And back in 07, 08, getting a short sale to go through, the banks just didn't have the staff to do it, nor did they know how to do it. So we started doing property management to help out these folks who couldn't sell, didn't want to do a foreclosure, and didn't want to just walk away from it. So it's been a blessing to a lot of folks.
1: If you were to look out at your market right now, what percentage of the properties are REO and short sale versus traditional and retail sales?
0: Right now, I'd say that the REO market is probably about 10%, and our short sale market might be 4%, maybe 5 on a on a high day. Patrick, do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? Really, we've Specialized in sphere of influence and the niche of getting past clients and developing relationships with them, so that when we do a transaction with somebody, it's going to be one of we hope seven transactions over a lifetime. And uh, we're only a few years into that. You know, I've only been in the business for roughly twelve years, but we've done numerous transactions with a family where we started back in 2001 or 2002, we closed a transaction, we kept in touch with those folks, we put them into our database, and we've been mailing to them or seeing them at functions for the last 12 years. And they refer us over to their friends and family. And then as their situation changes, we help them into something else, either buying something or buying a rental property or something like that. But uh, Sphere of Influence is really where our business has grown over the years. Patrick, you had mentioned that
1: in your market there are a lot of Hispanics. Do you speak Spanish? I do speak a
0: little bit of Spanish, and I have I continue to learn. My, our, our, our market here in El Paso, the demographics are that about 80% of the people in the county are Hispanic of Mexican origin, and most of those speak Spanish, most of them as a first language, many of them as a second language, meaning that they grew up speaking Spanish and not English. And then the public schools locally will teach kids how to speak English so that they can adapt to life in the United States. And I've had to learn Spanish just to be able to get along here because it's very common where someone will call you up on a sign call and there's no English spoken whatsoever. And I've had to figure out how to communicate with that person instead of just saying, I'm sorry, I don't speak Spanish and lose a lead.
1: We haven't got to your team yet, and we're going to come to them in a minute. But just real quickly, do any of the members of your team speak Spanish?
0: Yes, they do. I've got two assistants that work for me. One's a full-time assistant that works with our property management, and she speaks fluent Spanish. She's a native speaker. And then I have another young lady who's a part-time assistant, and she speaks fluent Spanish as well. I've got one buyer's agent that works. She's not a native speaker, But she took Spanish in college, and living here in El Paso, she's been able to pull that out and utilize it, and it's really helped her as well.
1: What percentage of your clients are Spanish speakers?
0: Very, very small percentage. When we look at it as a total, it would probably be one and a half, maybe two percent because most of the time what I'll do with our spanish speakers is I will refer them out to another agent in the office who's a native speaker just because I cannot go through the legal jargon of the contract in spanish to where I feel comfortable with the liability issues if they don't understand
1: that was my question is whether you had to have a contract written in spanish and how you would explain it so I think you you've answered that you refer it out to someone who can service that client that customer better than you can.
0: Yes, absolutely. The Texas Real Estate Commission does provide contracts in Spanish for reference only, but I don't read Spanish. I can just speak it and communicate fairly well, but I'm not going to sit down with a couple or an individual who is only a Spanish speaker and go over a contract and have them sign something that I don't understand in Spanish and they don't understand in English. It's just not worth it. So I always get them to be comfortable with the person. We've got numerous people in my office that I can refer that out to and they'll be able to communicate in Spanish.
1: Patrick, you've mentioned a few times that you have opened up a property management division in your operation. I'd like to talk about that property management side for a minute. Why did you decide, actually, I think you've answered this. I was gonna say, why did you decide to start a property management department? And it sounded like it was out of need because you had folks that their home was not selling. They were underwater. They couldn't sell it, but they were moving and they needed to, to do something with that property. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. There's another side to that coin too, though. I, getting into the real estate business, you go back to what Warren Buffett says about investing. You invest in things that you know, that, things that you understand. So when I got into this business several years ago, I started realizing that investment properties was a good long-term plan for your retirement. So I bought a couple of properties, and quite frankly, I was not doing a good job in managing those properties for myself. So I started interviewing local property managers to get some help. I needed it. And I was quite frankly appalled at what I was hearing from the industry of the fees and the charges that the property managers wanted to collect for the services that they were providing. They were typically telling me 10 to 12% of the gross monthly rent. They wanted to keep all of the late fees if the tenants were late on rent. They wanted to charge me an additional 10% for picking up the phone and having them send a plumber out to the property to unclog a toilet if that's what was necessary. So if the now we all know that plumbers get paid 75 bucks to 100 bucks to ring the doorbell. That's before they've even performed a service. So these property managers wanted 10% more just for the courtesy of calling these guys. And I was unwilling to do that. So I said, I've got to figure out how to do property management for myself. And then once we figured out how to do that, other people just started showing up at my door saying, we'd like for you to manage our properties as well. And that's why we created the property management side of the business. So far, it has served us well. And it certainly helps us get business on both sides, the sales side and the rental side.
1: How many rental properties do you have under management?
0: Right now, we've got 136.
1: What is the total gross rent coming out from all those properties?
0: We have a right o- just over $184,000 in gross rents that we collect every month.
1: Do you know what your monthly gross commission income is from the rental side
0: of your business? It varies month to month simply because we have finder's fees that go into it, in 2012, we averaged about $8,800 a month. Now, this current month, January of 2013, our gross commission income was $11,500. A year ago at this time, we had 65 rentals. So we've, built, we've literally doubled the number of properties that we handle in a year, and we expect to increase it at least by 60 properties this year as well.
1: So your goal is to get up to 200 units by the end of the year? That's correct. Is the property management side of your business profitable?
0: It is profitable. Now, we have a much different fee structure than what I mentioned from my competitors. As an owner, when I looked at this property management business from the the side of an owner a few years back, I was unwilling to pay what I was being asked to pay from some of my now competitors. So I looked at it and said, what would I be comfortable doing? What would I be comfortable paying somebody to perform these services for me? And what I came up with was that we would pay, I would pay $75 a month flat fee per unit that I have. And I would be willing to pay 50% of one month's rent as a finder's fee. And what I ended up with is collecting 45% of one month's rent and then we do all of the other services for a flat fee of $75 per month. The reason we did that was because as I got more into this, I've got a couple of properties that get thirty-two to $3,500 a month in rent. If we went with the traditional model of 10%, we'd be collecting 30, 320 to $350 a month for collecting that rent, paying the bills for the owner, which quite frankly are very few and dealing with a tenant who is more educated, has a better income and quite frankly just doesn't cause as many problems as a $450 half duplex in another part of town. So I wanted to eliminate the ones on the bottom end and pick up more of them on the top end. And I settled at $75 because there was so little work to do on the top end and it kept me out of the bottom end at 75 because that's roughly a 20% um, commission that we would be collecting each month if we did them for $400 to um, 500 bucks a month.
1: Sure. So in the old model of a 10% fee, $750 a month would be the rental where that would break even between you and your competitors. Once you go above that, you're more advantageous. Are the majority of your properties that you're renting out more than $750 per month?
0: Yes, they are. Yeah. In fact, we, the only ones that I have below $750 a month are mine. I've got a duplex where we get $450 per side, and then I've got another little house that I get 700 bucks a month. So I'm, the, I'm the, the exception to my own rule in that case, and the majority of them end up being at about fifteen dollars to $1,800 a month.
1: Are most of the properties that you're managing Are they houses? Are they townhouses, condos, apartment buildings, uh, duplexes? What what are you typically managing?
0: The majority of what we have are single-family residences, and then the next in line would be a duplex, where we've got several people who have duplexes, and we're managing both sides of that duplex.
1: Just to go back to the original comparison you made with the existing competition, you mentioned that they were collecting a percentage of the rent and late fees and service charges. You didn't mention what they were charging to rent out a property, the, the lease fee.
0: It varied from 50% to 100%.
1: So you went in on the low end of that scale. You're charging 50% of the first month's rent for your finder's fee.
0: We're actually collecting 45%. What, what I found when the on the low end was 50% out in the market. And I said, I'm going to charge 45%. And I've carved a niche out. It's not a bunch of bargain shoppers out here, but for the services that we provide and the service that the owner gets, I feel like it's fair. And we're making money at it. We're not getting rich. And that wasn't my purpose. My purpose was to serve and to carve out a niche to where when these people have a time to sell, who's going to be in their face? And that's going to be me. So they'll turn around and we'll put the property on the market for sale. And it's a win-win-win.
1: Has that been happening Have these... Landlords who have been renting, when they decide to sell, are they moving to you to sell the property?
0: Yes. And the reason is, is because we're in contact with them on a monthly basis, because we're putting money into their accounts. So we've established that not only are we trustworthy, but we do what we say we're going to do. And the logical choice for them to come back to is me, because we've already got an existing relationship with them. Plus, on the sale side, it allows us to build up a listing inventory of homes that are for sale, and if it gets to the point where they cannot sell, I've got an alternative for them in my office that I can say, we can always rent it. And the next question is, do you do property management? We say yes, and then we just flip it into the rental side of the MLS, and we'll rent the property typically in about three weeks. Do
1: you offer any type of special incentive for a landlord to sell the property through you
0: we don't offer any discounts for being a property management client that then sells we just give them the same fee structure that we give to the general public which is I feel like very advantageous for them I copied Russell Shaw's no hassle listing and modified it just slightly on the fee structure but essentially that's what it comes down to and when we make our presentation the thing that I hear more than anything is that that's fair and they sign the paperwork and we're off and running.
1: While my mind is in that mode, these tenants that are going in and out of these rental units, do you give them any kind of incentive to use you as their buyer's agent if they go to buy a purchase property?
0: No, we haven't had any need to do so. And I think it comes down to the relationship that we establish with the tenant because we're, we're serving them as well as serving the landlord. And I feel like we've done a good job balancing that to where it's profitable for the landlord and it's also a good service to the tenant. So they understand that whenever there's an issue at the property, we have somebody dispatched to the property quickly, we take care of whatever the issue is, and they trust us. Once they've trusted us, we're the logical p- person to call back if they're in the mode of wanting to purchase a property.
1: Let's get into the details of the services that you're actually providing. Let's go through a quick timeline. Let's say that you get a brand new client. Somebody walks up and says, I have this property. I want to rent it out. I'm a landlord. What happens?
0: Well, the first thing we do is We've got a landlord interview, very similar to the seller interview that we do. And Jessica, my property management assistant, would go through this landlord interview with the landlord. She would set an appointment with that landlord to come to my office to meet with me, go over the paperwork, and then go over the market after they've agreed that we're going to be their property manager. If the property is vacant, then we will schedule a time for it either to be cleaned or staged if necessary, and then have pictures done, and all of our properties go live on the market on Fridays. We've got all of our systems both on the sale side and on the rental side where our properties go live on Fridays. So once we set that plan into motion, we've got the sign that will go up, the lockbox goes on, and we start marketing it. And then we have, this is the reason why I've hired two buyer agents, is so that we could coordinate showings So that I don't have to physically go to the property to show it each time, but I've got my agents that are able to do so, or if a tenant prospect has an agent that they're working with, they can go out and show the property, and we'll pay them a small finder's fee. In our market, it usually ends up being about $200 as a finder's fee for showing a rental property and helping us lease it. Once we get the property leased, we sign the lease in the name of the owner and provide them a copy of it. We move the tenant in, have the tenant set up all the services, gas, water, electricity in their name, and then we typically wire transfer the rent to the owner, and we'll do that on the 7th of each month.
1: When is rent due?
0: We write all of our leases to where rent is due on the first of the month, and it's late after the 3rd. After the 3rd, they incur locally a $25 late fee plus $10 a day. Then the next system that we have to look at is on potential evictions. Now, not every tenant pays on time. Occasionally, you'll have somebody that's a day or two late. But if they get past the eighth of the month, well, let me back up. We, the, the system is this. We, they pay rent on the first, or if they're late, on the fourth, they will incur a $25 late fee and then $10 a day that point forward on the 8th of the month if we still haven't collected the rent we're sending an eviction notice to the tenant and if that doesn't get their attention enough to pay the rent by the 15th of the month we are going to the justice of the peace and filing for a forcible entry detainer and have a court date set so that we can get possession of the property and get the tenant out so property management from a time crunch standpoint it's not that big And that's what keeps a lot of people out of it is that they don't know the systems that you need to put into place in order to serve your owners well and have to go to court whenever necessary. And it doesn't happen very often. We don't have to go to court that much.
1: If you get to the point where you file on the 15th in your area, what happens next? How long before you do the next step and the next step all the way through actual eviction? I realize that doesn't happen often. But just so we can get a picture in our mind for people who haven't gone through this. Okay, so once
0: the tenant has been delinquent through the 15th of the month, my assistant goes to the justice of the peace office and pays for the forcible entry detainer. Now that that we're holding $250 of the owner's money and out of that 250 we'll take $131, pay the justice of the peace, which also pays for the constable to go to the property and deliver a notice, serve the tenant with a notice that they've got to go to court, and it's usually two to three weeks later. So if it's on the 15th, we might be in court on the 30th of the month. It may be the 2nd of the next month, depending on what day of the month that turns up. And if the tenant doesn't show up at court, we win by default. If the tenant does show up in court, then they get to plead their case, and say, we didn't pay the rent because of whatever lame excuse it is, and the judge will say, do you have a legal reason for not paying the rent? And they never do, because there is no legal reason for not paying the rent. And the judge will say, can you pay the rent today? If they can, we'll be happy to accept it and leave the tenant in there. But if they can't pay the rent, the judge grants the judgment in our favor, and tells the tenant that they have five days to appeal, and most of the time they get out. But if they don't get out, five days after the judgment has been granted, we have to go back to the court and file a writ of possession, and that's where the constable would meet us at the property, and we have to have a crew that will empty the contents of the property out onto the front yard, and it's the tenant's responsibility to remove it. That's the worst case scenario. Since we've been doing property management, we've done that three times.
1: When they move everything out onto the front yard, does the tenant typically come back and collect it all, or do you end up having stuff sitting out there for a while, and if so, what do you do with it?
0: Sometimes we do have stuff that ends up sitting there. We we did one of these just a couple of weeks ago. The owner wanted to do some renovations to the house, so we had a 40-yard dumpster delivered to the house, and all that trash just got thrown into the dumpster. It was no big issue. Uh, On other properties, one of them I can remember a few years back, there were some pretty good stuff, gun safes, stereo equipment, computers, and we had to put all that stuff out on the, the street, and it all disappeared. I don't know who took it. It wasn't me, but it all disappeared, and fortunately that owner didn't have to pay for anything to be removed other than the contents from the house.
1: I just want to make a quick statement for all that are listening that all these rules are different based on your local laws and that you should check out your local laws and processes. Patrick and I are just going through this real quick to give you an idea or an example of the way it works and it tends to work very similar to this in most areas but they all have their unique peculiar issues like sometimes you have to take those belongings and store them for a certain amount of time and pay rent. So you want to make sure that if you get in the property management business, you, you check with your, your local laws, maybe chat with a real estate attorney to make sure you're handling this all properly. Patrick, you did a great job of walking us through that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So we've got how we would find a tenant and lease out the property, but let's go a little more into that, actually. How do you screen tenants? What exactly are you doing for the landlord in the area of screening?
0: Well, that's one of the things that you've got to do, and we've got an application process that uh, begins with an application that was provided to us by the Texas Association of Realtors. In addition to that, the studies, the research, and the advice that I have gotten from attorneys that are real estate attorneys. They tell me you've got to give the tenant the criteria that you're going to use to screen them if you're going to turn them down. They've got to know what the rules are to see whether or not they can pass so we created a list of qualifications and we put that along with our our application they've got to sign the application and the rules and regulations saying that they agree to our rules and then we will do a background check on these people now many people will do a credit check i don't do that because i'm not an expert in reading a credit report and what we found is that not everybody has good credit and there are many reasons why people don't have good credit. For example, a divorce. That usually never ends up with both parties having good credit. Somebody's over outspending the other party, and one of the, par- the husband or the wife wants to be honorable and pay the bills. They can't go buy a house, so they've got to go rent. We've got to make a judgment call on that. And what we've done is we've put up the criteria that if they don't have any evictions or skipped rents in the past – If they're not felons, if they're not drug dealers, and they're not sex offenders, then if they've got a good job and can make at least three times the rent, we'll rent to them. And so far it's worked out pretty good. We have very few evictions, and we have very few tenants that are late on the rent. And usually they'll get it cleared up by the 15th of the month when they are late, which puts more money into the pocket of my owner. He's had to wait a couple of days for it but they'll end up making 100 to 150 bucks a month off of those late fees, and they're always happy about that. That's right. You don't get any of those late fees, correct? No, we do collect 25% of the late fees. I've got increased labor involved in collecting those because we've got to send out the notices and then follow up on those notices. So we did collect 25%. Now, that's not much. Because when you're talking about a $25 late fee and you multiply that by 25%, we're getting pennies. And our owners are very happy with that. Again, they say that's very fair. And we don't ever have anybody object to what we we do. You
1: also mentioned that some of your competition charged a 10% service surcharge over sending out a plumber, as an example. Do you charge any additional fee for sending out a service provider?
0: No, we don't. That was one of the biggest things that frustrated me with my competition out there because I felt like if I was going to pay 10% as a monthly fee, they ought to do that. That should be part of the service. So we've made the choice, even though it's allowed, we chose not to participate in that. We chose rather to give a better service at a better price and people stay with us and they refer business back to us as well. We've done zero advertising since we got into this business. Absolutely none. All of our business comes to us from either referrals or people telling other people about us. And it's worked out quite well. Now, you mentioned when you're
1: screening this tenant, you're going to do a background check, make sure they're not a felon. Then you also mentioned that you're actually going to be looking at their income and making sure that they're earning three times the rent. How are you proving that? Are you asking them to show you a pay stub? How do you verify their income?
0: There's two ways to do it. One is through, remember, we've got a large army base here. So we've got probably 50% of our tenants end up being military. And the individuals that are service members receive something called a leave and earnings statement. It's basically their paycheck stuff. And we ask them to provide that to us because On that leave and earnings statement, or LES is what it's known as, it shows what their base allowance for housing is, and it shows what their pay grade is, how much they earn, how much retirement they have, and how long they've been in the military. And we're able to judge whether or not they can pay the rent. Additionally, if we've got a service member that, is open to this we will allow them to do what's called an allotment and it's basically setting up an automatic payment to where that rent comes directly out of their paycheck each month and gets deposited directly into our account. It's great. We've got tenants that have been doing this for years they don't even think about rent. The army provides it to them to pay for rent and they just push it right on directly to us and it works out fantastic. Now on the civilian side Part of the application is an employment verification form, which we would send to that civilian's supervisor. So if we've got Joe and Mary Tenant that work for ABC Corporation, we're going to go to their HR department and ask, would you please verify that this person works here and how much they make and how long they've been working there. And we'll typically get that back inside 24 hours. And once we've got a tenant approved, we give them 24 hours to put a deposit down on the property. And then they move in sometime shortly thereafter. You mentioned this whole
1: process typically takes three weeks from the time you are hired to find a tenant to the time a tenant is in the property?
0: That's our average time on market, yes. Now, and let me input another thing here. On the background checks, for finding out whether folks have skipped rents in other parts of the state or other parts of the country, we utilize a service from the American Apartment Association. And you can sign up for an account on their website. Just do a Google search on the American Apartment Association, and you can sign up for it. They've got different levels of background checks that they'll provide to you. The most common thing that we see is a same name for a tenant prospect where Maybe in Dallas, there's three people of the same name, Yolanda or something like that, and that person in Dallas has had skipped rents. And then we have to just verify that the one sitting in front of us is not that same person. That's the most common thing that we see. It's not that big of an issue because you're usually able to track where the person sitting in front of you has lived in the past and established that it's not the same person that got kicked out of an apartment complex in Dallas or Houston or San Antonio or something like that.
1: Are there any other items that you check during the screening? You mentioned background check, their employment and income, anything else?
0: One of the other things that we look at, in addition to the background check, if they're rented in another location anywhere in the country and here locally we get a lot of Germans as well, we'll try to verify rent in other parts of the country or other parts of the world if necessary where we will send a request for a a past address tenant history is what we're looking for where we'll go back to the previous landlord and find out were they a good tenant how did they leave the property if they've left did they owe any money when they left and did they skip out? And the most important question that we ask is, would you rent to this person again? Most of the property managers that we've come in contact with are good, honest people, and they'll tell you the truth. They'll tell you whether or not the tenant was good. Because if they weren't, they don't want anybody else getting burned like they did. And they'll help protect you by giving you accurate information.
1: You mentioned that once the tenant is approved, they're going to put down a deposit. Do you require good funds
0: we don't require good funds. Most of the time, we get a wire transfer into the account. We found a company called Buildium several years ago, and they handle all the back end of our property management business. And part of that back end is electronic transfers and electronic payments. That's made it very simple so that I don't have to write 136 checks to owners each month. So, 90% of our owners are getting a wire transfer, and we only end up writing about 15 checks a month, individual checks to owners to where we then deliver those through the mail, or they come by our office and pick those checks up.
1: You mentioned the name of that program was, did you say Buildium? How, how do you spell that?
0: B-U-I-L-D-I-U-M, Buildium. And you just go to buildium.com, and you can see their software. It's all cloud-based which means that you're not hosting it on your computer. It's out there in the world somewhere, and you're able to utilize that system. And it's very cost-effective. They've got different fee structures for the number of properties that you manage.
1: So are you doing all of your property management? As far as your software, all the properties are in this Buildium? You don't have a different software program?
0: That's correct. Everything is in Buildium.
1: So it's tracking all of the properties as well as making these payments?
0: That's correct. It is. Now, we have to pull the trigger on the payments. So on the 7th of the month, I will go over the owner statements to verify their accuracy, make sure that the bills are correct, whether or not a bill needs to get charged to a tenant or whether it needs to get charged to the owner. I'll review all 136 of those statements, and I will approve them or disapprove them depending on what happens. By noon on the 7th of the month, we've got them all approved. And then we will wire transfer the payment to the owner. It goes directly into their bank account. And the other owners will write a check to them, call them and tell them that their check is ready, or just put it in the mail and it's delivered to them.
1: You mentioned that when you were going through the eviction process, there was an amount of money, a reserve, $250 that was the landlord's money. Are you collecting $250 reserve on each individual property for each tenant?
0: Yes. With the exception of, i got one owner who has 11 properties. He allowed me to hold the $100 on each of the properties. That's only because it's $1,100 that I'm holding for him. And the expenses each month for that owner are not that great. But w- whenever I've got a an expense on a property... So last night, we had a, a tenant that just moved in, and they had a water line break. Okay, I've got to send the plumber over there to the property we've got to fix it. Well, somebody's got to pay for that. It's not going to be me, so I'm not using my money to pay for a repair on somebody else's property. I'm using the owner's money, and I've kept $250 of the owner's money to pay for miscellaneous repairs. Each month, after we've had a deduction from that $250, we'll replenish it, so that at the end of the month or beginning of the month, we have $250 sitting in our trust account to be able to pay for potential repairs. There's no repair. There's no deduction. That 250 just stays there. Once a property either gets sold or the owner has decided to move into it, we give them that $250 back. It's a deposit. It's their money.
1: What happens if you need to have some service work done and it's going to cost more than the 250 It costs $750. What happens there?
0: Well, Mike, if I was managing a property for you and we had a water heater go out and that's typically what would happen it's in our market that's a 735 dollar repair by our favorite plumber i'm going to call you and say mike your water heater went out on 123 elm street i've got three estimates my handyman can do that for you for 535 dollars My plumber can do that for you for $735, or I can have Roto-Rooter do that for you, and it's going to cost you $1,100. Which do you prefer?
1: What did I say? I don't have the money right now. I don't want to do anything.
0: Okay, Mike, we've got to fix this, because in Texas, we've got to have the house what we call habitable, meaning that it's got to be a good habitat for somebody to live in, and... If you'll allow me to do this, I'll loan you the money to pay for it, but I've got to be able to to deduct that from next month's rent. I'll go ahead and pay for it so that you can stay in compliance with the law, get that tenant back in the house with hot water. Are you okay with that?
1: Okay, so you'll advance them the funds. Let me just push this just for fun. What happens if they say no?
0: If they say no, then the tenant can get out of the lease and move. So I have to throw it back into your lap and say, are you okay with that tenant moving out this week? Because that's literally what has to happen.
1: Have you ever had that happen where a landlord just
0: won't pony up the money? Fortunately, we haven't. We, now, we have had some pretty major expenses, though. We've had air conditioning units go out, and that can be four or $5,000. In that case, the owner has to advance me the funds, or they've got to make the arrangements to get the repair done in a timely manner themselves. And we've had that happen before.
1: Patrick, you mentioned earlier that with some of the folks that are in the military, you can set them up on auto payment. some of the tenants. So are all of your tenants on some kind of electronic payment?
0: All of our tenants are not on an automatic payment, but they have the ability to log into their account through my property management website, and they can make that payment online. Now, we've only got a few of our tenants that are soldiers that do that direct allotment where it comes directly out of their paycheck, it works great for them and it works great for us. But more and more, we're finding that the tenants are very appreciative of the fact that they can go online, pay that rent bill each month. And for us, we only collect that from a checking account. I won't allow you to pay rent with a Visa or a MasterCard because I don't want to pay the 3% fee on a $3,000 rent payment because that ends up taking money out of my pocket and out of the funds that I would be collecting. So we only allow tenants to pay through a checking account. If they don't have a checking account, then they're going to go to a local 7-Eleven, buy a money order, and walk that or mail that check in to us so that we can collect rent on their behalf.
1: Of your 136 tenants, how many are paying with check versus some type of electronic payment?
0: In January we processed 3233 checks and that's about it so the majority of them are coming in it was either check or a money order we don't accept cash but the majority of them are doing the online transfer so what's that 80% when you receive those checks what do you do if they bounce another process that we had to set up now with surprisingly The banks can tell you very quickly whether or not a check has bounced, but they're very slow to put the money back into your account when you make a deposit. Figure that one out. We had a check that bounced earlier this month. The tenant paid the rent, and the tenant actually called us and told us, Hey, my check bounced. I need to pay you the late fees. We didn't even know about it yet. Our bank had not even notified us. But in our leases, we have that there is a $38 hot check fee and they have also incurred the late rent plus the ten dollars a day so if we walk through this scenario and a check bounces on the seventh of the month if we don't receive notification from our bank until the tenth we back it up and that tenant has incurred the thirty eight dollar hot check fee plus the twenty five dollar late fee plus $10 a day for the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. So that's an additional $60. And they then have to bring us good funds, which would either be a money order or a cashier's check. And if they do that, then they're fine. They stay in the property. We don't incur any additional expenses, and we don't go to court. If they don't bring us that, we go to court. And we they either pay it or we get the property back.
1: Patrick, I I understand that. That's great. Let me ask a, a question, though—a technical question. If you've already sent the rent out to the landlord on the seventh, based on your theory that that rent had come in and it actually bounced, you're now negative in your account. Yes.
0: Well, we do have a deposit that we're holding for the tenant, and that deposit can be used to pay that out. So, what we're doing is advancing. Essentially, we're advancing the deposit to the landlord, but we would go back in and make a, a note in our system that we've wired that money to the landlord, and now we don't have any deposit for them.
1: Very good. Thanks for going into all those little details. What other services are you providing for the landlord? We've talked about screening this tenant, collecting rents. You've mentioned occasionally you have to do a repair and get a service person out there. Do you ever have to do any larger repairs, renovation, remodeling, things like that for a landlord?
0: We have had to do a couple of those and the the worst one that I can remember was that in 2007 we had a hailstorm that came through El Paso and this hailstorm hit one of our properties and did about $35,000 worth of damage. So for that owner, this was a stucco home and we had golf ball and softball size hail that day. They were big hailstones. They did a lot of damage to the stucco on the home. We had to pretty much completely rebuild the stucco and i had to coordinate with the contractor for that work we had to coordinate with the insurance company for the payments all the things that a general contractor would do and we did that this lady's been with me for about seven years we were happy to provide that service for her it didn't take a whole lot of time to do it and we didn't charge anything extra for just helping her out she's still with us she's asking us to help her purchase another property So I feel like that service has been a benefit to them and it was a benefit to us as well because it just strengthened the relationship that we've got with that owner. And things like that don't happen all the time.
1: Patrick, how do you find these landlords?
0: They find me. We've not done any advertising to attract anybody to us. Being that we're a large military town, Certain sections of town are, have high concentrations of military, and they talk. So when somebody's getting what's called a PCS or a permanent change of station, there are many people in the same group that are going out at the same time, and they'll talk amongst themselves and say, who are you going to use? What, are you going to sell your house? Are you going to rent your house? Most of the time, they've come into our market. They've bought a house on a VA loan, meaning that they're upside down from the day that they signed on the paperwork And now two to three years later, they owe 97% of what they signed for. And they don't have the money to pay us to sell it. So we end up renting it. And they tell their neighbors about us. And they'll just walk in and say, hey, you're renting my buddy's house. Can you rent mine for me? And we'll say, sure. And I'll put them on the phone with my assistant, Jessica. She does the interview with them, sets up the appointment, sign the paperwork, and we're off and running So it's worked out great for us. It's been a blessing.
1: How about staff? When all these calls are coming in, all this service is being required, do you have someone on your team who is handling all this property management or are you in charge of all of it?
0: Ultimately, I'm in charge of it, but most of the questions can be answered by my staff. And I've got a full-time assistant that works primarily on the property management. So whenever there's a repair request that comes in from a tenant... So, if Joe and Mary Tenant at 123 Elm Street have the water heater go out, the, the process is now water heaters never go out Monday through Friday in regular business hours. It's just a rule. If you get into property management, just count on that. So, after 5 p.m. on Friday, you're going to get a call and the water heater is gone out. So, we've set up a system to where the tenant is allowed to call a local company and The local company is authorized, pre-authorized, to go and make that repair because we've got to get it done. I'll get the notification on it. I'll confirm with the local company about doing the repair and tell them to go ahead and do it. Meanwhile, I'm calling you, the owner, and telling you that this is what we're doing because we have to do this. But we got the system set up to where most of the calls will go to my assistant, Jessica, and Jessica will dispatch whoever is necessary to do the repair. And most of the time, the repairs are less than that $250 that we're holding of the owners, and we don't even have to call the owner for authorization on the work. So if we have a frozen water line that needs to get repaired, I can send my handyman out there. He's gonna charge me anywhere from $35 to $50, and we just deduct that from the owner's $250 reserve deposit and bill him for that the next time the billing cycle comes around.
1: You mentioned the tenant knows who to call. Do you give the tenant a list of vendors when they move in? So if if your water heater goes out in the middle of the night, this is who you call?
0: Water emergency only. They're the only ones that they have the authorization to call after hours. We actually put together a tenant handbook. And the tenant handbook is available in a PDF on my website. This is my property management website. So if anybody wanted to go there and see what we have, it's TTIPM.com. Phonetically, that's Tango, Tango, India, Papa, Mike.com, and go under documents, and they'd be able to see my tenant handbook. Now, the tenant handbook is given to the tenants when they sign the lease, and then we remind them that it's online if they misplace that original copy that we give them. And in, in that tenant handbook, it gives them instructions on how to place a repair request, who to call in case of an emergency, how to get keys to a mailbox, move out procedures, all sorts of things. It's just a system that we set up to help me be able to deal with all these people and also to serve them so that they don't call in asking for this information and we're just inundated with telephone calls.
1: Very good. So while there emergencies, you're talking about a plumber? Yes. You know, that's the fear of most people of getting into property management, either their own properties or someone else. You get a call in the middle of the night and the toilet is backed up, and you're saying, no problem, the tenant can just call directly right to the plumber and get that fixed, and they don't have to contact you right away at at 1 o'clock in the morning.
0: That's correct. I don't answer the phone at 1. I shut my phone off at 7 p.m. every night. And after hours, we've got the procedures set up, and they work. And what we find is that it's a very seldom that these emergencies occur, but when they occur, if you've already got the procedures set up and you educate people about those procedures, they'll use them. And usually it's not going to be a problem where it's a loss of life or something like that. It's it's a water issue. The the procedures are go to the meter, turn it off, stop the water into the house, call Roto-Rooter, and they're the ones that we use on the weekends and after hours. They'll dispatch a plumber over to the house, usually within two hours, and then they've got to go buy the water heater so they can't install it at 3 in the morning. And who needs to take a shower at 3 in the morning? Maybe somebody does, but, you know, one cold shower out of 365 days a year, that's not bad. And water heaters go out. It's just expected that they're going to go out after 5 p.m. on Friday.
1: You mentioned TTI Property Management. Have you set up a separate company to run your property management
0: division? We did. We set up an LLC years ago. and Back when Star Power was in existence, Howard Britton did such a great job, rest his soul, for uh, passing recently. But he did such a great job in interviewing top agents around the country, and you're doing a great job taking over where he left off that I heard other agents that set up their businesses as a corporation, whether it be an LLC or a C-Corp or whatever it was, but for liability protection, they, they set up one or the other instead of working as a sole proprietor. So I took that advice early on and we set up an LLC so that we could operate the property management and remove that liability from me personally, but rather put it onto the corporation.
1: While we're talking about organizational structure, you're working for a broker. Are you the broker owner of the company?
0: No, I am the broker owner of TTI Property Management, but I am not the broker owner of REMAX Real Estate Group. I am a broker, licensed broker in the state of Texas. I could go out on my own and open up my own individual shop but I found benefit to being with the franchise. And not, this is not a plug for REMAX, but it's, it's worked out for me because I'm in an office. We've got 25 other licensed agents, and they don't have property management experience. And many times they'll just come down the hall and say, I've got this seller at this address they can't sell. Will you manage their property? And we say, yeah, we'd be happy to. And it's worked out very good. But I don't want to be responsible for the lights coming on and for the copier when it breaks down. I just want to be able to utilize it.
1: Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. You did not have to put your property management business under the REMAX broker. You didn't have to get his or her permission to set this up and structure it and put up to the trust accounts and so forth. You did it outside of the sales brokerage side.
0: That's correct. My broker, the managing broker for our REMAX office, didn't want to do property management. So I said, Will you allow me to? And they said, we'd be happy for you to do it because we're tired of sending these referrals elsewhere, and it's allowed us to keep the client in-house. And if, if one of our agents down the hall brings me a seller and says, here we have Joe and Mary seller, and they can't sell their house on Elm Street, will you manage it? And we'll say, absolutely, we'll be happy to do so. And then the next question, originally the next question was, well, what happens when they want to go back to sell? And I say, I'm going to give it right back to you. We're not going to hold on to that because you have that relationship established with them. We want to make that that relationship better by serving them for however long it is, but I also want to keep the relationship between me and you, the other agent. I want to keep that good so you'll bring me more property management leads and I'll give it right back to them when it comes time to sell. And if they sell it, great, God bless them. We've both benefited, and the one that's benefited the most has been the property owner because we've been able to serve them for a period of time in renting the property, turning it back over to be sold, and then the other agent will be able to help them sell it. doesn't happen that often, but that's the commitment that I give to the agents locally, whether they come in my office or they come from another agent or another brokerage outside my office. And we have a lot of them too. We're a a Coldwell Banker agent down the street. They don't have property management in their office. So they call me up and say, we've got this seller. Will you help them? And I'll say, you bet I will. And when they go back to sell, I give it right back to them. And that builds that relationship with that other agent.
1: When other agents refer you property management business, do you pay a referral fee?
0: We do. It's small. It's 200 bucks, but they're happy about that because they've got the commitment for me that in the future that sale is going to come back to them, and they got 200 bucks out of it. They wouldn't have gotten anything if they would have just let it go. So bought them lunch a couple of times, maybe bought a new handbag for the ladies or whatever it is, but um, it's a nominal fee. Again, we don't make a whole lot of money off of our property management, so I can't pay out a whole lot. So $200 is what we've decided was a good fee, and everybody has accepted that. They've just been more than thankful to say, hey, we appreciate what you do.
1: Is your property management business just breaking even, or is it kicking off enough money to, to either pay you or to pay for some of your overhead on your sales side?
0: It's profitable. It, it, in fact, covers the overhead that we have on the sales side plus so it is profitable and the sales side ends up being a windfall because i've got my base costs covered by the property management business
1: while you've been doing all this property management over the last few years have you discovered any tricks to the trade in other words how to maybe rent a property faster or for more money or or have tenants make repairs any any unique tricks that you've come up with
0: well in our market we have a cooling system which in the southwest our 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 friends in the southwest will know about this but something called evaporative cooling have you heard of that sure okay so that's fairly prominent here in el paso but if you can find a home that has refrigerated air conditioning it'll rent faster than the evaporative cooling and that's just a comfort issue because of the climate that we have there are a couple of months in the summer where we call it our monsoon season where the humidity will be at fifty to seventy percent now, in the desert where I live that 's high in other parts of the country you're going hey that 's a dry day, and, and we 're enjoying the low humidity at fifty percent not not where I live today it 's about six percent it 's very, very low. Refrigerated air conditioning is a plus, so if the owner can afford to put refrigerated air conditioning in, that is a huge way to attract a better tenant. Another way is just to have a good, clean property. It's proven time and time again, just like in sales, if you'll clean the property up, change the carpet when it needs to be changed, paint the walls when they need to be painted, and just keep it in good condition, it'll rent 10 times faster than a dirty property will. So it's worth it to put fresh paint on the walls, fresh carpet on the floors, and have a professional service come in and clean it that's what we do typically now the next thing that we're gonna do has to go with the price and rental properties it, it's amazing what twenty five dollars in some of these properties will do for one tenant over another tenants will work their budgets and they will look at their budget and say I can't afford to go at say thirteen hundred dollars a month but twelve seventy-five I'm okay there and if we can get it rented at twelve seventy five inside two weeks instead of waiting for 13 for a month, we've got a win-win for everybody because we've got a tenant in that property. That property is now performing. It's bringing in income, and it's protected because you've got somebody in there, and you're not going to have vandalism on that property.
1: So try to end your
0: rents in $75 increments? I wouldn't say that that's the key, but looking at it and being negotiable on the rents, not holding out on trying to get a higher dollar number when you've got somebody in front of you that can take the property and take it off the market and get you income in there. But it really goes down to looking at what the market will bear on that price, just like in the sales side. If the market says it'll sell for $150,000, if you price it at 149 dollars you're probably gonna sell it very quickly. If you price it at 169, you're not gonna get a whole lot of looks. So look at that market and be clear on what the competition is doing because that's where it really comes down to it. You're not worried so much about what people got in the past, but what are the other similar properties asking because that tenant is gonna look at your property, they're gonna look at the one right down the street, and the one across the street. And if those have a better property, and the price is less, the tenant will take it every time.
1: How do you keep your finger on the pulse of the rental rates?
0: Doing market analysis. The, the same way that we would do it on sales, we have to look at what's available, how many homes got rented, looking at an absorption rate. And we want to know how many properties similar to this one have rented in the last 30, 60, and 90 days. We don't go any further back than 90 days in the rental market. And then we also try to look at our troop movements when we've got either a deployment where troops are leaving El Paso or a redeployment when they're coming back to El Paso from an overseas assignment or something like that. And we'll see rent rates fluctuate as much as $100 a month on a property based on troop movements. It's kind of interesting to watch there.
1: You're finding this data where? In your MLS or some other source?
0: Yes, we're finding it in our multiple listing service. So the same way in our multiple listing service, we have many different criteria that we can search for, single-family residential for sales or residential rental for the rental properties. You just do a market analysis. Look at what's going on in the last three months. Look at how many comparable properties are out there. And say if I've got two potential tenants in the next 30 days and I've got 16 properties out there, well, I've got eight months worth of supply. So, Joe, Mary, what do you want to do? Well, we need to get this house rented ASAP. All right, fine. These guys are priced at $1,300 a month. Let's price you at 1275 and see if we can attract one of those two tenants in the next 30 days. Do
1: you get market rent data from any other source other than the MLS?
0: No, no. I'm sure that there are subscription services that you could pay for out there. But I just go to the MLS. I'm I'm a pretty simple guy when it comes to that. And that's the best source of information for me on the sales side. It's also the best source of information for me on the rental side.
1: If an agent was thinking about starting a rental department or a rental branch of their business, do you have any final thoughts, any advice for them?
0: Well, the first thing that I would say is that you need to set up systems to help you serve both your landlords and your tenants. Without a system in place, you're always going to be running behind. But if you've got a system for every little step of the way, then all you've got to do is turn that system on and let it work. It's just like going down to McDonald's, and when you look up at the menu and say, I want a number one, if that's a Big Mac and an order of fries, and the cashier behind the counter says, do you want to supersize that? That's all that has to be asked. So when you've got that system in place, Let the system work for you. And that's one of the best things about your organization and what you're doing is that you're picking the brains of people across the country and they're revealing their systems so that guys like me can learn from them. And I'm happy to share any way that I can, but that system is vitally important to living a sane life when you're doing property management.
1: Patrick, let's do this. Let's move now over to the sales side of your business. You said the majority of your business is coming in from sphere of influence, referrals from past clients. Let's talk about that. Do you have a database of past clients and sphere of influence? And if so, how big is it?
0: We do. I use Top Producer as my database manager, and we love Top Producer. It's a great program. We've used other ones, but we always came back to Top Producer. In my top producer database, I've got uh, several different databases or different segments of my database. The one that I communicate with most often is what I call my newsletter list. And I'm sending them a monthly newsletter via snail mail. And I've got a mailing service that we help out on doing that. And then they're also subscribed to the top producer market snapshot. Realtor.com has a Email edition of a newsletter. Remax has an edition of a newsletter. They're getting hit via newsletter email about three times a month. And then we also have the snail mail that goes out. The majority of my database, which is about 2,700 people in there, just get the email version. But my personal list of people that I've been working with for a long time friends, family, sphere of influence. That list is at about 625 people, and they get a newsletter with a personalized cover letter on that each month. And then within that group, I have another segment that I call my raving fans, and my raving fan group is about 130 individuals, and they will get a newsletter plus an additional letter and an item of value each month. So depending on where you fall in my database, I'm either getting you three to four times a month via email and snail mail or five times a month via email and snail mail.
1: You went through that a little quick. I was trying to take notes. I apologize. I think I might have missed something. But you said you had 625 people in your tight sphere of influence, 130 people you called raving fans. Was there another
0: group? Well, the total group that is in my database, and that's about 2,700, give or take, in the total group. Now, that includes lists that I've compiled. For example, I've got a list of physicians that are in there that we would do a direct mail to to offer a service to them. We, whether it's buying rental properties or something like that. We've got attorneys for probate where we want to send out and say, hey, if you've got folks that are going through probate, you need an, an an agent, you can send them to us, we'll be happy to take care of them. But they're not on my personal list, my sphere of influence of net people that I could walk up to them and say, hi, Joe, how you doing today? Some of these people we don't know. It's just that we compile the list, put them in there, and then – through our Remax website and also through topproducerrealtor dot com, if somebody goes onto my website, then they're gonna put in their name and their email address and I collect those people as leads, they get put into my database as well. And I don't have a clue who these people are. It's somebody that just came through my website looking for properties. I accepted them as a lead and now they get our information back into their inboxes once a month through either Remax or through TopReduce or Realtor.com or one of those other systems that's out there.
1: Your personal list, the 625 people, who is in there? Are these your past clients, your friends? How did you put together this list? Who's in this list of 625 people?
0: It started with people that I went to church with and friends of my wife now, I, I'm a transplant to El Paso. We moved here in 2000, in February of 2000, and I was working with the, other bit, the job that I bought. I was working that for the first eight, nine months that we were here until I just gave up on it and said I've got to find something else to do. Well, during that time, I would meet people at church and civic organizations such as Rotary or Lions Club or, or whatever it was, and I would put them into a database. And at the time, I think I was using ACT, and i've just transferred that database into top producer and i've built it up to people whenever they buy a home from me whenever we've sold a property for them we put them in the database and we put them on this newsletter list that will send them this once a month paper newsletter snail mail and we just keep it updated over time we delete people out of them as they pass away we delete people out of them if i don't want to work with them anymore and sometimes that happens it's not that often but occasionally you just have a personality clash and you just say, you know, I didn't enjoy that. And we'll say next and move on. That's the 625 or so people there. We've worked with them in the past. We've either met them at church or a civic organization. Maybe it's my attorney or whatever it is, but that's who's in that sphere of influence newsletter database.
1: So personal contact is what defines that. If you've made a personal contact with them, then they move into this sphere of influence personal list.
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: How do you break out these raving fans then? Who's on that list?
0: Pretty simple criteria. You've either done multiple transactions with me or you've referred business to me, one or the other. If you do that, then we put you into the raving fan group and then your benefit is that I've got a list of benefits on my website from free notary service, free faxing service, Uh, special invitation to client events, um, any number of things, and we have folks that will take advantage of it. We've even set up discounts with some of the local restaurants where if they walk into one particular restaurant, you get a free piece of baklava just for showing my raving fan card.
1: You said there's about 130 people in the ravings fan group? Correct. Is there crossover? Is the 130 part of the 625 or those two different groups?
0: It's a crossover. The, the 130 is a part of the 625.
1: You said multiple transactions. If someone just did one transaction with you, do they end up in your raving fans or just in the sphere of influence list?
0: They could end up in the raving fan group if they referred business to us. Okay, so it must be either multiple transactions or referral. Right, because some of the people in our raving fan group have never done a transaction with us, but they've referred a lot of business to us. We've got a lot of folks at my church that they're not moving. And they trust me, and they say they're real connected in the community, and they say, if you want to sell something, call Pat. And I've got some folks that have sent me, I think the most has been 10 referrals out of this one fella, but he's not moving. We've never done a transaction together.
1: I take that guy to
0: lunch. Yeah, he's he's on the top list, that's for sure.
1: You've talked about some of the things you do. This newsletter is kind of the center stone of of your contact. That is going to go either through snail mail or email. What else do you do to stay in touch with your database?
0: The snail mail and the email is pretty much it. In the past, we've done some client events where close to my office, um, we were at another location a few years ago, and the Independence Day Parade would go right in front of my office, and we would have a party on the morning of the Independence Day Parade. So July 4th, we're setting up in the parking lot with a tent, donuts, orange juice, coffee, and inviting all of our database to come watch the parade from our office parking lot. That was one of the things that we would do. Other things that we've done uh, at the country club, we've had swim days where we invite people out there, and we just have a big party out there in the summertime to go take a dip in the pool, have some hot dogs, hamburgers, and, and celebrate the summer. So little client events like that, those are the biggest things.
1: And you said you're not doing those currently, so right now it's it's basically this newsletter getting out. Do you also make phone calls?
0: I'm not a big phone call guy, and it really comes down to the amount of time that it takes to do it. I know that I should do it, but with the properties that we manage, the number of appointments that I work on, I just haven't scheduled the time to do it, and I'm not that well-equipped from the personality standpoint to pick up the phone and just talk to people. You know, years ago, when I first got into the business, I-, I found some cassette tapes from a guy named Mike Ferry. Mike's been training real estate agents for many, many years. And one of the things that I figured out about Mike Ferry was that if you're going to do Mike Ferry, you got to be like Mike Ferry. And then you can translate that to Brian Buffini. And if you're going to do Brian Buffini, you really need to be a high eye like Brian. I'm not. I'm a high S. I'm great one-on-one when you call me, but when it comes to me picking up the phone and calling you, I'm just not that chatty, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with you. So I'm just not comfortable picking up the phone and talking to folks about anything except business, and that's where my high C takes over, and we'll go into the business, and we'll talk business, and we'll have an enjoyable conversation, but it's pretty much business from that point on.
1: So the majority of your business is coming to you. You've structured it. You've put out marketing so that the leads are coming in. Now they're a warm call, and now you're comfortable chatting with them.
0: Exactly. And again, going back to, I mentioned the the Millionaire Real Estate Agent book earlier. In that book, Gary Keller identifies two ways that business can come in. You've got marketing-based or prospecting-based. And my business has been built on marketing-based. And if you think about the way the majority of businesses are structured, the majority of them are marketing-based. Now, some of them, sales organizations, they have a salesman that will go out and make a pitch. I'm not like that. I'm more like the McDonald's that will put advertising and marketing out and attract business to me. And once you call me, we're good. We'll work it. And we'll, nine times out of ten, get that business because that's a warm call. I'm very comfortable with it, and the systems that we've put into place are very attractive to the prospect that's calling, whether it be on the property management side or on the sales side. And it's just a system that takes place. Comparatively in my market, very, very few people have a system for doing anything, much less picking up the phone.
1: Sure. So you've used your C-side, your C-personality to develop these systems. You do have to get that out, that message out to these folks. So what are you putting in? What message are you putting into your newsletter that's getting them to pick up the phone and call you?
0: Well, it's a very subtle newsletter. It's a template and it's provided by a company out of Tucson, Craig Fort from Service for Life. And I've been using this newsletter since... 2002. And we've just used it every month. We had a small break for about a year. And during that time where I took the break from that, my business actually went down. So I put it back into place and, we, and the business came back up. But this newsletter has subtle hints in there. Hey, if you need a good, caring, competent real estate agent, call me. And the referrals come in. We'll get anywhere from five to 10 referrals a month From our sphere of influence of people who know somebody or they're going to do business themselves and the contact that we have is that newsletter it just goes out the referrals come back in our business continues to grow we're blessed Patrick I just want to
1: ask you real quickly I understand that you're doing listing appointments in your office is that correct
0: yeah that is correct
1: how's that working for you
0: it's it works out so good it's unbelievable Last year, in January of 2012, I went to the CRS celebration over in Phoenix, and I heard a lot of the agents talking about doing their listing appointments at the office, and I said, you know, that's something that I could implement right away. So when I came back, we changed our seller interview questionnaire, and when my assistant Pauline does the seller interview, the last question that she has is, Pat, it's it's actually a statement. It says, Pat wants to meet with you at the office first. What times would work for you on these days? And she'll give them an alternative choice of Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, at a couple of different times. And then she reinforces that we're going to meet at the office first. Once we've got the commitment on the time, she'll send out a pre-listing packet either via email or via snail mail. We may be doing a, a priority mail or an overnight of a physical packet, and then the folks will review our information, come to the office when they're physically able to do so. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times we have sellers who are out of town. So if they're out of town, obviously they're not going to fly in to just meet with me. But if they're local, we have them come to the office first, and we'll go through the listing presentation. They've already done so when they walk in. And the amazing thing was that in the past year, Out of the listing appointments that I had, eight out of ten of them would walk into my appointment, and they would have the paperwork filled out. And I hadn't even met them yet. And they were ready to list with me just having sent the paperwork out to them, asked them to come into the office, and they would come in, and their questions were related to the seller's disclosure notice and a couple of items on there. We wouldn't talk about price or anything else until we had the paperwork signed. And then they'd say, well, what price are we going to put on the house? And then we'll pull up the multiple listing service, do a quick market analysis, come to an agreement on it, sign off on the price, and then we implement the systems to put the house on the market. And I've never even been to the house. It works fantastic, and I encourage everybody to try it.
1: Wow, that is awesome. So they're filling out the paperwork, signing off on it, bringing it to you. You have not looked at the house yet. You have not set a price. They're doing this strictly based on your systems and your promotion.
0: Exactly is what it is. Now, going back to our systems, if it's a local seller, somebody that can come into my office, we're going to deliver a physical pre-listing packet to the property. And I've got my assistant, Zenia who would drive out. She'll drop it off, or if it's on the far end of town, we'll send it priority mail or overnight mail, and it'll be delivered to them. And we ask them to review that information. The letter inside says, here's the information. Please review it prior to your appointment with Patrick at the office on such and such day. They go through the pre-listing presentation, which basically was the same thing that Russell Shaw would put out in his, and I copied a good part of it changed it with my statistics and everything else, and it builds up why to use Patrick Tuttle as the agent for selling your home. We also include a blank listing agreement with all of the agreement in there in a white envelope, and on the front of the envelope it says, seller's homework, please complete prior to your appointment with Patrick. So we're giving them the instructions to do so before they've even sat down to meet with me. And then whether it's the next day, because I never meet with anybody on the same day, it will always be at least 24 hours, preferably 48 hours from the time that the phone call comes into the office, because I want them to be able to see the packet, review the information, and then come into the office to sit down with me. And the the conversation is literally like this, Mike. So if you walked into my office, you've got the paperwork in hand, I'm going to sit down at the table and say, Mike, I I see that you've got the packet of information in your hand. Did you have time to review that? And you would tell me yes or no. If you say yes, then my question back to you is, great, you ready to put me to work? And that's my presentation. That is literally my presentation. Now, the alternative is, if you walk in and I say, have you had a chance to review the information? And you say, No, I haven't had a chance to review the information. i say, okay, that's fine. Let's do that now. And I'll take you through that pre-listing presentation page by page all the way up to the frequently asked questions portion of it. And the last thing I'll say is these are the frequently asked questions. I'll let you take these home and read through those again later because I don't want to go through and bore you with that. But can you see what separates me from the other agents here in El Paso? And they'll say, yes, we can see that. And I'll say, great. Are you ready to put me to work? And most of the time, they'll say yes. And there's no more questions other than where do we sign. And then once we've got the listing agreement signed, we'll talk about price. What percentage of the folks that make it to
1: your office are signing the listing agreement? 90%
0: of the folks that are coming to my office are signing the listing agreement to set. Some of them We've had to turn over to the rent side because the market didn't support renting. Now, out of the folks that we met with in the last year, we had very, uh, gosh, I think there was only five or six people that walked away, so it may be more than the 90% because I know I had 100-plus listing appointments last year. I'm not that great on tracking, but we put, in the calendar year of 2012, I put 96 properties on the market for sale, a lot of those we turned over to lease, and we got them leased. And we ended up selling, I believe it was 46 listings that we had sold out of the numbers that we sent over to you. So it's that system is working. It is absolutely working in having people come to the office, and it really sets you up as a professional to where they're coming to you as the professional. Do people ever say, no, nah, you come out to my house, they do. Occasionally, we'll have somebody that, in fact, I had this just a couple of nights ago where the family, it was a husband and wife, came in to sell their, the husband's father's house, and he said, we really want you to come in and see the property. And I said, and I really want to see that property, and we'll do that after we've had our initial meeting here at the office because I want you to understand who we are and what we do because if you're not comfortable with who we are and what we do, There's really no need for me to see the property, because I won't be your agent. And he says, that makes sense. We'll see you at the office. So you're getting everybody to go to the office? We're getting them to come to the office, and it's fantastic. That's the best idea I've gotten in a long, long time. How long are your appointments typically taken at the office? Total time takes about an hour, and that's because we've sent the information out to the prospect, When they walk into the office, if they've already got it filled out, we turn immediately to the MLS and we start looking about pricing models. I've already done an absorption rate analysis to see what the months of inventory are on the market for the target property. But we'll get there and we'll look at the competition. We'll determine what the price is to put it on the market. And we're typically in and out of the appointment inside an hour.
1: And when you used to go to the house, how much time would you spend
0: on that appointment? The time on the appointment would typically be about an hour there, but then I would have the travel time to and from, which is time that I could not be doing anything else. So that's the biggest benefit. Geographically, some of the listings that I take are about 30 minutes, 35 minutes away from my office. So I've got half an hour one way. I've got the time sitting there, half an hour back. So it's been a huge time saver to be able to get people to come to the office. Patrick, why didn't you do this earlier? I didn't think to do it earlier. It, I was told that this is the way you do it. My first trainer in my first office, uh, amazing how much the business has changed. She showed me how to measure a house. I can't imagine trying to measure a house these days. But that's how we got trained, and you do we started out doing the things that we were trained to do. So she, they taught me that when a seller calls and says, we want you to list our house, you go to the house. What's more unprofessional than that? Doctors don't even do house calls anymore. And if we don't get the business, why did you go? How did you break that habit? I just made the decision to do it. And when I came back from celebration last year, I told my assistant, Pauline, I said, Pauline, we're going to change this question on the seller interview to make it to where you schedule appointments for me here at the office. And she said, okay. She didn't question it. She just did it. And the sellers, they don't question it most of the time, and they'll come to the office. And it puts me and all the other agents that are doing it in the driver's seat because we are now able to control the environment that we're sitting in. We can't get biased from the granite countertops or the closet that has the shelving system that is so great or whatever it is. You can't get biased on that anymore because you haven't been there to see it. And they can't sell you on their property when you're not sitting in it. So you go to the MLS, you show them what the competition is, and then you get the price set for what the market determines that it needs to be.
1: I would argue that the reason that you were able to break the habit and break the mold is because you saw another model and you saw proof that the model works when you went to Celebration. You saw that other folks were doing it, and therefore it became real.
0: I'd agree with that. In fact, last year, they had a video of another agent, and I think he was in Alabama. I don't remember the guy's name, but he was showing a video of himself doing seller appointments at the office. And I said, I can do that. And it was so simple to make that one change, and it has just been amazing the amount of time that it has saved me, and it's amazing the respect that the client gives you when they walk into your office instead of you walking in and asking, do I need to take my shoes off as I walk around?
1: Patrick, let's talk about your team. You've hinted a little bit about it, but let's bring it all together. Please tell me who's on your team. Tell me their titles and what their tasks are. What do they do for the business?
0: Okay. Well, the starting off is my lead assistant, who is Pauline. And Pauline is she's my listings and transaction coordinator combined into one. She handles telephone calls, listing input, preparing listing paperwork, and coordinating all the systems that go together for putting a property on the market the next one is Jessica she's my property management assistant she does everything the same thing as Pauline does but just does it on the property management side so anything that goes to a rental goes to Jessica then I have Wendy who is my part-time bookkeeper Wendy will come in twice a week make sure that the bills are in order for the property management side she's the one that processes the rents for the tenants the payments and also the payments back to the owner and then we write checks every two weeks to our vendors. She handles that all in about 15 to 18 hours a week. Then I have Zenia, and that's just like the flower, Zenia, Z-E-N-I-A, and she's a part-time marketing assistant who handles a lot of my marketing, which is once the signpost goes up in the yard, she's putting up the QR code for the video that we've done on the property that goes up onto YouTube. She delivers flyers to the property on the inside, and she's somewhat of a general runner we're also moving her into doing some servicing on short sales where she handles the equator side of the short sale business we've got a couple of them it's not a big part of our business but she's doing a great job on that she works about 20-22 hours a week on the agent side of the business we have Ronnie and Ronnie is a brand new agent she uh, her, her name is Veronica we call her Ronnie and she's never closed a transaction We brought her in to help us out on the rentals, to go show rental properties, and to be able to work with buyers that come through the organization that I just don't have time to work with anymore. And then we've got another lady by the name of Susan, and Susan is an agent. She's been licensed for about six years, and all she wants to do is work with buyers. Uh, She actually is not on my team. She's kind of a... And she's in, she was in my office before I came, and my deal with the office when I came in was that I wouldn't recruit from inside the office, but if I had a way to benefit them and me, that I would refer her out. So she refers me her listings. I refer her buyers. It's a good working relationship, but we consider her a part of our team, even though she has her own independent contractor agreement with Remax Real Estate Group. The next person on our team is my lovely wife, Raja, and Raja is, from a personality standpoint, exact opposite of me, and she has a high I with a secondary D, a very low S, and a very low C. So, I mean, when you say opposites attract, you could look at her and I, and we're pretty much the opposite. Now, Raja works with a lot of the folks that she's known. She's from El Paso, And she knows a lot of folks here. And when there are folks that want to go look out at properties, she's the one to call. She'll take you around. She'll give you the grand treatment. She is wonderful with our buyers, and she loves working with the buyers. Um, She doesn't close a lot of transactions. In fact, she hasn't closed any in the past year. There were a couple of them that she says, I'm the responsibility, and God bless her, I'm going to let her take that. Uh, But she is definitely a buyer's agent where – when she has time from away from taking care of our children, she'll be out showing properties with folks and just enjoying the social part of being a real estate agent. And then there's me. And I do pretty much everything else.
1: How are you compensating this property management assistant? Are you paying a salary or are you paying a percentage of the revenues? How does that work?
0: Hourly. My assistants, my unlicensed assistants are all hourly and she'll earn a certain hourly rate. She works anywhere from 38 to 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday. If uh, there was a situation where she had to leave the office early to go take care of her children like that, I allow her to come in and work on the weekends if necessary to catch up on some bookkeeping work or something like that. But all of my assistants are hourly. Susan, who is the buyer agent that works with us, we're pretty much just on a referral agreement with her. Ronnie... I've got her on a a scenario where I heard one of the agents that you had interviewed earlier last year, and I can't remember which one it was, but I liked the idea. But this agent was saying that they had started paying a base salary of $2,000 a month plus 15% of commissions. And I did the math on that, and it looks like it ought to work. Time will tell whether it's going to be a good scenario. It's been a blessing to have her in the office because whenever we get buyers coming in or if we've got tenant prospects that want to go look at properties she's all over them and she takes them out and it's been well worth the the money to have her on my payroll she's been with us for about four weeks now so time will tell how that's going to play out and whether that's going to be a good scenario paying that base salary of two thousand dollars a month plus the commissions and my wife and i we just you know we pay ourselves a salary And then anything else, it goes into the business, and we'll bonus ourselves out at the end of the year or at the end of the month if we're going on a vacation or something like that.
1: Okay, so you pay yourself a salary and then some bonus.
0: That's correct, I do.
1: Who is licensed on the team?
0: The licensees are me, my wife, Raja, Susan, and Veronica, or Ronnie. They are the the agents on the team. Pauline is licensed, but her license is inactive right now. Jessica, who handles my property management, is not, nor is Wendy, nor is Xenia. So we've got four licensed persons that could go out and show property, and then we've got four in the office that can answer phone calls, tell basic information about properties, but they can't go and show properties.
1: Jessica, your property management assistant is not licensed.
0: That's correct. She's not. Now, in Texas, what an unlicensed assistant can do is they can answer the phone, and if somebody says, can you tell me about the property at 123 Elm Street, she can say that it's available and that it's, the asking price is X, it has this many bedrooms or whatever. And she could actually open the property. If it's a vacant property, she could open it and let the tenant prospect walk through the property and look at it, but she can't actually walk in and say, this is a bedroom. That's part of what an an unlicensed assistant cannot do. She can open it, let the tenant prospect walk through, and then go back to the office and let them fill out an application if they want to. And then I'll review the applications. She will run the background checks on them and we will sign a lease with them if they pass the the background checks. But as far as showing property, coming through, saying this is the bedroom, this is the kitchen, that's a no-no. We don't allow that. Patrick
1: We've been talking about this hybrid organization where you have a sales side and a property management side. And I'm sure there are some agents looking at that and they're, they're wondering to themselves, is this operation profitable?
0: Yes, we are profitable.
1: Would you mind telling us what your profit margin is on the entire operation as a percentage of your revenues?
0: As a percentage of revenues, our profit margin is about 40%.
1: Very good. So when you say 40%, does that include your salary in the 40% or is that after you've paid yourself a salary?
0: That's after I've paid myself a salary. Now, I don't pay myself much of a salary. That's one of the things that um, when you're looking at your tax structures, we chose, based on our CPA's advice, to pay ourselves a very small salary. And that was because they said, if, if I don't, the IRS is going to come after me and uh, be asking for a very large check. So far, it's worked out, and uh, if there are any IRS agents on here, my taxes are paid in full. How have
1: you structured the sales side of your business? Is that also an LLC or a corporation, or do you do that as an individual?
0: We've got that set up as an S-corp, which is essentially a sole proprietor, but it just gives you a little bit more level of protection And all of the expenses end up being a pass-through on the S-Corp. And that was at the advice of our CPA, who's a good friend of ours, and he said, this is the way you want to set this up. Gives you a little bit of protection, allows you to operate as a corporation, but you don't get the double taxation that you would have with a C-corporation where you get taxed at the corporation level and at the individual level as well. So consult your CPA on that. That's what he told us to do. We followed his advice.
1: Patrick, you've been doing a lot of things. You've pushed yourself into a business that people told you you wouldn't be any good at. And you you proved them wrong. What drives you?
0: You know, there's this little situation that I have where it's called eating and I like to do that. <laughs> Years ago, th- this was when I was getting when I was transitioning out of this job that I had bought I'm a Christian, and I want to consult wise people, and I, one of the people that in my life I consider to be wise is an uncle of my wife, and he's a, he's a pastor, he's a missionary, and I sat down with him, and I said, look, here, this is where we are, and I need some advice. I, I need to know what my calling in life is, and he looked back at me, and he said, you know, you're calling at this point you're married, you have two children. And well, at the, at the time we had one child, and we've got two now. said, so you're married, you have one child. Your calling is life is as a husband and a father, and that translates into being a provider. He said, Pat, what you have to do is provide for your family. And at this point, it's less important as to how you do it, and less, as long as it's honest and it's fair work, it's less important as to what your career is but you doing it in a way that honors God and honors your family by providing for them. And that was the advice he gave me. Coupled that with the advice of my brother-in-law, who was the real estate broker, I just said, this is what I'm doing, and I'm going to figure it out one way or the other, and I'm going to work hard at it. We're still working hard at it, and I'm thankful that I found the star power organization years ago to where i could listen to those interviews with top agents around the country and i'm thankful that i found your organization and that i can listen to the interviews that you have with top agents around the country because it is a direct line to the most successful people in this business many of them i'll never get to the level that they are but if i can get one idea from these people and translate it to my business then I think it's helpful to me and it's honorable to God to use the talents that I have to be able to serve my family as a provider. And that's what drives me. That's what makes me get up in the morning and come to work and do the best that I can at serving my clients. Just the ability to be able to provide for my family.
1: Why do you think you've been so successful
0: well, I knew that question was coming because uh, I've been listening to your interviews for quite a while, and you asked this question to everybody. And this may surprise you, but I, don't, I really don't feel like I'm successful. A- and the reason is is because I feel like I'm stable. There, There's four growth stages that people would go through. And for a long time, we were at the survival growth stage, whereas it was just do everything you can to make sure that the bills get paid. And then if you've got something left over for yourselves, great. God bless you that month and you've got a little bit more. The stability part is where I think we are right now in that we've got good income, we're building some things for our future and our, for, for our retirement, and we're building a future for the people that work with us as well. But as far as successful, when I look at the, the Russell Shaw's, the Sam Miller's, you know these guys i look up to those guys and say they've got some things figured out where they've got a business that if they walked away and i've heard russell shaw tell this so many times i can't tell you how how long because i always go back and listen to his interviews if he walked away and decided to take some time off he can do that because he's built his business as a business and it runs itself even when he's not there when I get to that point that's where I think I'll be successful I don't know how far off off I am for that but then I'm gonna to go to success and the next step is significance and the significance part is where you've provided for yourself you have provided for your family and you can go out and serve others to the point where you're really giving back to the community whether it be the local community that you live in or it be to the realtor community that you're serving by doing the mastermind interviews that you're doing. And I I consider that you have the significance because you are a top influencer in our market today because of what you're doing with these interviews. You're affecting thousands of people just by asking questions. And that's significant to me and to agents all across this country. And I really appreciate what you're doing for the work that you are doing.
1: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Really thank you for doing this, for asking people uh, these questions so that it helps guys like me that haven't got a clue what we're doing.
1: (laughs) I think you have more than a clue. You're doing a great job. (laughs) I'm glad to have you here. Patrick, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first?
0: I would tell them to get somebody, whether it's a friend or a mentor. Have somebody administer a DISC personality assessment to them so that they can find out at the core who are they and what kind of business they would like to be comfortable working with. If they're a high D, high I, cold calling, one-on-one type stuff is great. But if they're a high C, maybe it isn't the right business for them. But if it's a high S like me, okay, find somebody that you can copy and then just figure it out. So I would advise them to take that assessment first and then get good advice on what their personality style is and try to mold a business. And I'm clear about this as a business, not as a job, and I'll distinguish that in here in just a minute. But look at this from a business standpoint and how they can build it into a business. So find out what their personality style is and then find someone who has a similar personality that is successful or stable, and see if they can copy it. And if they're comp- comfortable copying or working with that person in a role that is as a buyer's agent or as an assistant or whatever it is. But figuring out what they're comfortable doing, whether it be cold calling, working with buyers, working with sellers, or just being an assistant. The next things that I would do is I would advise them to buy three books. The first one would be, it's called 21 Things I Wish My Broker Had Told Me. And it's by a guy named Frank Cook. And I bought this book probably in 2003. And it just details things because my, uh, uh, what your broker, your local broker is not going to tell you when you get into the business. When I got into this business, they, I was attracted to a local, a good local company that didn't have a franchise representation. But they had a good reputation, and they had the best split that I could negotiate at 50-50 for any transaction that I closed. So I went with them. But they didn't tell me all this stuff that this book told you. So you need to buy the book and read it, I'm not going to go through all the 21 things. The next book that you would buy is called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. It's a fantastic book about business, and Michael Gerber gets it right when he talks about the difference between having a job and having a business. Now, in the office that I'm sitting in, we've got 25 agents who all think they have a business, and two of us do. I've got a property management business, and there's another guy that has the business because he's, a, he's part owner of the company, the, the REMAX office. Everybody else has a sales job in that if they don't sell something, they don't get paid. And that's the biggest difference between having a business that can pay you when you're not there and having a job that pays you when you are there and when you are selling something only. So buy that one as well, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Read it. The third book is The Millionaire Real Estate Agent by Gary Keller and Dave Jinks. That book will teach you the three L's of the real estate business, leads, listings, and leverage. And once you've read it, read it again, and read it again, and read it again and learn the principles that are in there and apply them to your business. Those are the things that I would advise a new agent to do. Secondarily, I would tell them to go work with a team. If there's a team in the local market, find one as close to your house as possible and go work with that team because that team most likely has a structure that they can work within. They have systems for service They have systems for bringing leads into the business, which is highly valuable. As a brand new agent and you have no leads, you have nothing to do. So if you have someone that can hand you a lead and says, go sell these people a house, serve them, that is highly valuable, even if the split is 15%. It gives you the experience and it gives you income, food on your table. Those are the things that I would advise any of them. And I wish that somebody had given me that advice 12 years ago because I might have a little bit more of a foothold on the success that I'm looking for and the significance that eventually all of us want to have in this business that we call real estate.
1: Patrick, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable?
0: For the price that you collect on this, I'd say, Mike, that I get 10 times the value over what I pay for my subscription out of this. It it is invaluable. Every agent in this country should be listening to your interviews and if they can't find yours, they should at least be getting something so that they can pick the brains of top agents across the country. Because if all you're going to do is look in your local market to what other agents are doing, you'll only be as good as that local market. But we've been able to take ideas from Portland, Oregon, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Ohio, New York City, and put those ideas in place here in El Paso, Texas, to serve our clients, to serve ourselves, to bring in more leads and more income, and they work. And the good news was that I didn't have to try them out to see if they would work. Other agents did it, and all I had to do was copy it, adapt it to my personality style, and implement it, and it works.
1: Patrick, I've gotten to the end of the questions I have prepared for today. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't addressed?
0: No, it's been a pretty thorough questionnaire. And um, I really appreciate what you do, Mike, and the, the, the questions that you ask of the other agents that I've had the privilege of listening to those interviews. And I really appreciate what you do, and I highly encourage you to continue to do that because a lot of people benefit out of this. And I know it takes a lot of time out of your schedule to put it together. But, man, we really appreciate what you do in giving us these ideas that we can utilize in our markets.
1: Well, Patrick, you've done an amazing job of adapting the top agent models to your market and personality. You're determined enough to tell a respected coach you're going to succeed no matter what a personality test says. You've developed systems to leverage your time with people and technology. Your dual operating model of sales and property management is producing spectacular results. Your willingness to break tradition and design a property management company around the desires and needs of landlords is paying off in referrals and a doubling of properties under management. Thank you for sharing your model and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call. When we talk to an agent who is an ex-police officer who sold 264 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, Real Estate Agent Lead Generation Television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit Real RealGTV R E A L G TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward.
0: You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.